Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Well, it's that time of year again, or at least it was that time of year, the announcement of the inductions to the Baseball Hall of Fame. We knew this year that Fred McGriff was going to be going in. He was elected by committee. We now know that he will be joined by Scott Rowland, third baseman, who was voted in on the writer's ballot uh, with with just over 76%. And look, uh, the Hall process... Kevin, we we know this. We've talked about it. It's the subject of much debate. I will admit this out of the gate. I don't like the current system necessarily because to me it has created a an environment where strength of ballot enters the conversation as much of stre- as strength of career. In other words, depending on the strength of the ballot, a guy may get votes some year, he may lose votes the next year, even though, of course, he hasn't, his career hasn't been any better or worse because he hasn't, he hasn't been playing. But I also admit this. Um, I got no better alternative. You know, I've thought about this. Limit the number of votes. Currently, it's you're allowed to vote up to 10. Make it less. Make it more. I, I don't know if anything is going to make everybody happy. But I do know this that with the backstop provided by the committee system, you know, we're still in a position where the debate is always why somebody isn't in the hall as opposed to why that person is in the hall. And that's different than other halls of fame, right? I mean, frankly, either in a lot of them, either nobody cares who's going into the hall of fame, i.e. the football hall of fame. People I don't think get really worked up about which offensive guard gets in and every year. Or you've got a Hall of Fame like the Hockey Hall of Fame, which is basically an all-comers club. And it's a small group of people voting on on each year's class. And at the end of the day, it's you almost turn it into the, the it's it's the hall of good guys and, and the hall of, you know, the, the hall of the hall of buddies. You don't want that. I mean, really, Kevin, of all the players who've gone on since I've gone in since I've been voting, and that's the late nineties. Harold Baines' selection in 2019 by a committee, that's the one Hall of Fame entrant I'd take issue with. You know, and that's, I admit the whole DH thing complicates things. But look, uh, Harold Baines is a good dude. He was a good DH. He doesn't cheapen the Hall of Fame. I don't think anybody is necessarily going to get up in arms because Harold Baines is in the Hall of Fame. Look, I've been pretty consistent in my voting. I'm a small hall guy, right? Kevin, I look at it this way. If the Hall ever had a 10-member induction class, right? In other words, if we ever had a year where there were 10 folks going in the Hall of Fame, first of all, there'd be people dying of heat stroke at Cooperstown because the speeches are usually 20 to 25 minutes. You're in the middle of an, an open field. and That ain't necessarily going to be a good thing. But if, if we ever had a Hall of Fame 
class of 10 people. The hue and cry from writers and fans about watering down the hall would be enormous. So if you don't want 10 going in every year, why do you vote for 10 every year? Because theoretically, if you vote for a guy, you think he's a Hall of Famer. And I also admit I don't hold steroid use against anybody because, well, you know what? It's based on far too many days spent in clubhouses during the steroid era. Far too many conversations with players, and I'm convinced that there are members of the Hall who used PEDs at some point in their career. So, Kevin, heres I know you want to jump in. I voted for one person on this year's ballot. Any guess who it is? One person. Who do you think I voted for? No, I know who it is, but I want you to say his name out loud because you were obviously proud when you were checkmarking the little box beside his name, so I want you to say it out loud. Alex Rodriguez. His yeah, numbers I have no, I, make him, he, Kevin, he is one of the best players of his generation, period. And, yeah, I'm going to put my hand up. It's a bit of a protest vote, you know, which I especially felt like casting this year because of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens being kept out by a committee of Hall members, executives, and writers. I get all that. But, you know what, look, I'm beginning to wonder, is it a fight worth having anymore? Yeah, I don't is know. Is it a fight worth I, having? Oh, no, yeah, I'm going to ask you, Kevin. Is, is it a fight? Those of us who think that Bonds, Clemens, and Rodriguez should be on Hall of Fame. Is it worth yeah, having Ro- that fight? Yeah, Alex Rodriguez was suspended. That's the dumbest vote ever. Like, you're, you're wasting your time voting for A-Rod. Like, for me, it's okay to, to vote for people that use steroids because that's the era we went through. That's the era I played in. There, there has to be, for me anyway, a place in Cooperstown for guys like that. I find it just hard to believe to put the, the greatest home run left-handed hitter who ever walked earth not somewhere in the Hall of Fame. If you want to, you know, put some bad thing beside his name and say what he did and, and you know, we damn that. No, but you still have to be there in my mind. I just don't get the A-Rod. Once you're suspended for baseball for it, for me, you're out. Like, you, that, that that's no longer a conversation. The other guys. So does Carlos Beltran go in? That's different. It's, yeah, the Why? Slap he cheated. On the, the, the slap on the wrist for the banging is – what he's going through right now. He's not a first ballot guy because of that reason. Absolutely. Probably next year, the year after, the year after that, he's probably a Hall of Famer I because can make of the, the numbers, case. because of the switch hitting thing. The steroid yeah, yeah, yeah. thing, once you're suspended, that's a stupid vote. Like, I, I just don't understand when you were sitting around going, okay, Billy Wagner, look, I get how you feel about bullpen guys and how do you vote for them, but when you're one of the two best to ever do it, I get the 11 and two-thirds innings in the playoffs were atrocious. If that's what you want to hang your hat on and not give it to him until his ninth year, okay, I get it. But to just totally not vote for him and vote for a guy who was suspended, some could argue you're not doing your job as a voter. Uh, Have you, see, I has anybody ever is... said that? Has anybody oh, ever yeah. asked you the question, oh, yeah, yeah. you're not doing your job as a voter, but that he, you vote he, for a guy who but... pointed his finger and said some things, and if he cries, it's good enough. As long as he cries and says, I'm here's, so sorry, here's you're, you're Here, able to vote for him. I just don't get it. I don't understand Here's it. the thing. Uh, I don't think there's any wrong voting in an election. Uh, I, I, I really don't. Um, I also think that... I approach this a little differently than a lot of people because I covered baseball when steroids became an issue. Uh, 
Um, I was part of that generation of writers that, you know, probably didn't do as good a job as we should have done in unearthing it because it was it was pretty obvious that something was happening. And I think a lot of us got carried away with the whole Maguire-Sosa thing. Isn't this wonderful? It, it was great. You know, it, it, it beat the hell out of covering labor and talking about baseball strikes and all that. So once the extent of what was happening became known, once it became obvious, and Kevin, you, you would know this. You've been in clubhouses. Once it became obvious that a ton of people knew it was going on, even if they weren't using it themselves, a ton of people knew it was going on. Coaches, trainers, managers, the commissioner's office. Once it became obvious that that was part of the baseball environment, the powers that be accepted it. To me, that opens the door for anybody who was caught using PEDs or steroids because they were doing, and I understand, and I understand there's a fine point here. The fine point is, okay, you can make it, you, if you want, you can draw a line between people who were caught before baseball really cracked down on it and people who did it after baseball started the crackdown. I get that. But I just think you get into a, into a slippery slope when, you know, as I've said, I know there are dudes in the Hall of Fame who use steroids or PEDs. I know it. They weren't I mean, suspended. I know it. That, that's the difference. You simplify this thing. Don't overthink it. If a guy that's... was suspended for it, you don't vote for him. If he wasn't, and still if you have you know, thoughts that he did it, yeah, it's okay to vote. Again, there's a place in the hall for guys like that. I, I really do believe that. But once you're suspended for that, I just don't I just don't know with the other names that are on the list that you couldn't make better arguments for That's fair. those guys That's... than you could voting for a guy that, that, is fair. That, that, quite frankly, let's be honest, is not the easiest dude to vote for. I mean, no, I, I get his numbers. He's got sick numbers. No, nobody's arguing with you about the numbers. It's just everything that goes with it and the suspension. I just don't know how you justify it. Well, I don't have I don't have a vote. I was a player. I, I was, you know, the, the guy that stood at first base and said, hey, what's up? Had a 10-minute conversation with A-Rod. Saw him at dinner that night. He had no idea who I was. Like, it's a, but, it's okay. so, it's a me, little – there's, a, but, there's a, a couple of different ways of thinking about it, and that's my thought on it. Yeah, he was, he was a jackass. No question. But, this, but you know what? Look at Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray never – Eddie Murray didn't talk to the media. At all. He hated the media. First ballot dude. Obviously. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of guys who weren't great with the media who... who, who have, I think have, that's have, two have different gotten. situations, though. Well, one what guy I'm saying was just is that this... was sort of on purpose. The other guy had went through something, and that's sort of what he had to do to get past it. But I... what I'm saying is that this is where it gets difficult. When you start looking at all the other things involved in... in you know, in, in, in what has gone into a guy's personality. Having said that, having said that, and, and we'll address this later on with a really good discussion with Jason Stark about the Hall of Fame. You know, for me, seeing Clemens and Bonds turned down in the committee process as well, when a committee's made up of you know, players whose opinions I respect, Right. Alan Trammell was on the committee. Frank Thomas was on the committee. Jack Morris was on the committee. Uh, Lee Smith was on. When when 
Ryan Sandberg, another guy. When I see that committee saying we don't want these guys being part of the hall, I, I think maybe because I put such a great stock in what the players think, and I do put great stock in what certainly the Hall of Famers think, I think maybe I'm going to have to reevaluate this thing. You know, there are people who are saying, why don't you just give up your Hall of Fame vote? You know what? Because it's fun to talk about. It's an easy topic to talk about. And, and I also think that giving up your Hall of Fame, I mean, it really doesn't accomplish anything. To me, it's, it's almost a sign of uh, inflated self-importance to think that, well, I'm going to give up my Hall of Fame vote. And it's possible, that, it's possible at some point that they will thin down the voting ranks and folks like us won't have our. And that's, I, that's fine. I don't want you but to I, give I'm, it I'm up going to say this. I, I earned think, the right to have it. I, I just want you to I be think, better though, at Kevin, it. I, I, I think, Kevin, I, I think that as a result of what happened this year with Scott Rowland going in after getting 10% in the ballot in his first year in the ballot and some of the other jumps we've seen, I do think I have to, I have to look at my Hall of Fame ballot so, differently. I, I have the, to, and, I, and, I, and, and, and not necessarily cast a protest vote anymore because I'm just not sure. If the Hall of Famers don't want him in the Hall of Fame, then, then uh, who am I to say he's a Hall of Famer? I guess that's what I'm saying. There, there you go. Maybe did it's we, a come to we, Jesus moment for him. Did we get? Did we get anywhere there? No. Yeah, okay. we did. No, I'm, I, I'm admitting. I, I'm going to change the way I. I'm going to change the way I view. I view the process. Do you, do you feel bad about not voting for Jeff Kent? No, not really. See, that hurts. See, we got nowhere in that conversation we just had. No, no, nowhere. We, no, 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 no. Because we, it, we talk. We talk about protection yeah. because of Jeff Kent. Yeah. Uh, he he about is a protection. Yeah, well, that's the, absolutely. He's the reason why he he was moved around in the order to protect so the greatest what? hitter on earth. So what? He's one of the reasons. He has more homers than any second baseman in the history of so baseball. What? Because I just said that sentence should be the reason why you vote there. This is what Scott Rowland for me this year has done. The eye test and just looking at the obvious mm. numbers that's eliminated that right. Because I, Jeff, I got to put my hand up. And I nothing against Scott Rowland. No, and I, I know where I'm you're going with t- this. I want I'm you to take- say it. I you made me say the name A Rod. I want you to say what you told me about playing with Scott Rowland and watching Absolutely. him on the field. Did I, you ever I'm not think taking to yourself. No That's chance. A Hall of I, Famer. I, yeah, I, there's I, and I did it when I played against Jeff Kent. I I got to be honest okay, with you. When I when I was go. playing against Jeff Kent, I was thinking to myself when I faced Billy Wagner, Jeff Jenkins. After I got a the C and I single to left, walked by me and said, "How's it feel to get a hit off a of Hall of Famer?" And I was like, hmm. actually, it feels really cool to do that. Hmm. And that's the Scott Rowland thing. I played yep. with him when I was with the Reds. And I'm not trying to take anything away from him. It's not his fault that writers voted him, and they have their reasons why they did it. But I can, for the life of me, not remember one of my teammates looking at me and, and said, man, do you realize we're playing with a Hall of Famer? And I just think this year we'll change that vote or that way that guys like you and people like you are thinking about ways to vote people in, and it gets back to that small hall thing, right? Is this is this going to take that to a whole different level of where we're seeing those guys that play a corner that have somewhere around 300 homers that are big leaguers now because you can evaluate how hard your turn is around first base, which is what the sabermetric guys the last three days have been patting themselves on the back about Scott Rowland. So that for me is – I'm not sure how I feel about you know that. What you're, you know what you're saying, but, Barker? You know what uh, you want me to do? I'm going to do it right now. People can't see this. You know what I'm doing? 
What? I'm taking off. I'm taking off my. I'm taking off my denim. I'm taking off my jeans, and I'm putting on a pair of khakis. I'm putting on a pair of khakis. You you, uh, you want me to become khakified? Admit it. I you think want you may me have to. Become to. khakified. I think you may have to if you want to be a voter find me a nowadays. You're going to have to because of Scott Rowland. Again, I don't want to take anything away from him. He's voted in and good for him, right? It's not his I fault. But I'm just saying I think now the, the way you – it's no longer an eye test, Jeff. It's just not the obvious thing of – and I think a little bit of that's Todd Helton too, right? It's, it's right. not always the, the thing. See, I, don't, I just don't think I just don't think I'm we got anywhere. White, <laughs> I'm waving a white flag. Let's move on. Enough of this Hall of Fame talk. I'll vote for you next time. I'll vote for you next time. How's that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Enough of this Hall of Fame talk. Let's talk about something more exciting. Let's talk about outfield dimension. Look, I throw open DMs for questions every week that we do this podcast. This week, without a word of a lie, eighty. 85% of the questions I got were about the outfield fences or the outfield walls at the Rogers Center. This is a result of the revamp of the Rogers Center uh, and reports that there will be a change in the distance from home plate to the outfield wall, that in some instances there may be parts of the outfield. I'm going to call it outfield fence just because it sounds better. The outfield fence, there may be parts that are higher than usual. Basically, the, the, the rumor, I guess, is the only way to put it. The rumor is that the Rogers Center is going to be even more hitter-friendly, that it's going to be easier, or that the, the outfield fence is going to be closer to home plate, uh, which is great for the hitters. I don't know how the pitchers feel about that. Let's bring in Shai Davidi of Sportsnet, who has been on a tour of the facility has stood where the outfield fence is going to be shy. Can you, can you clarify this for us? Because there are a lot of, there's a lot out there and the Jays. Understandably, they haven't announced anything yet. I would presume they want to talk. They want to talk to some of their players, some of their pitchers about this, but what's your sense of what it's going to look like when, when the wall is actually up? Well, I mean, we've gotten some renderings from the club of what, the what the architects i guess designed and what they intended to look like right and it was clear it was going to be very different it's not a symmetrical wall anymore it's not this cookie cutter curve where uh you know the basically the blue jays have had at home since the the beginning of their existence in 1977 starting at exhibition stadium right this is a wall that's gonna you know curve at different points gonna have some different angles and when you can see the path, and you know, I tried to trace the path uh, through photos uh, during the tour, and I put them on my Twitter, my Instagram, uh, just to kind of give people a sense of what that line is going to look like. It is very, very different, and in a sense, it, it helps explain why there's been so much emphasis on outfield defense because you know balls are going to come off the walls at, at different angles uh, at this point and there's going to have to be a, a certain spatial awareness amongst the outfielders now uh, just because the, the wall is going to, to take an unusual path uh, from foul pole to foul pole. So it's going to be vastly different at the points where the the Blue Jays have moved the fence in from the previous uh, from the previous dimensions, basically where the elevated bullpens are going to be, sort of from the foul pole out towards the power alleys. Uh, you're going to have a, a tall fence. You know, we as we did the walking tour, 
Uh, we guessed it at about uh, 15 feet. You know, our, our unit of measurement was our colleague Ben Nicholson Smith, and basically said it looks like it's about two and a half Ben Nicholson Smiths, and <laughs> that was uh, kind of how we gauged it. And uh, you know, so I would I would guess it was roughly around 15 feet. So that's obviously going to be much taller, and you know, that's in place now. Right. Uh, the padding that, that, that is going to be there, uh, that still has to be put in. But the poles that are going to support it and going to support the elevated bullpens, you know, those are down. Those are in place. And you know, when you look at it from out above, it, it looks to jut out, you know, I would uh, maybe 10 feet, maybe a bit more than that from what the previous dimensions used to be. So it, it's going to be a very different look. And uh, I know there was a report out about the exact dimensions or with some numbers and uh, Blue just said uh, that wasn't uh, exact, but I would expect that it's pretty similar to those numbers that have been floating around, although I haven't personally been able to confirm that. But it's uh, it's going to play very differently, and uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where where that lands. Shy, from what you know, from what you just talked about, you think this is a true home field advantage at the Rogers Center for the Blue Jays? I mean – it's kind of like, I guess, right? Because they're going to be hitting there 80 times. And you think about their lineup and the guys who could, the way they can drive the ball. And, you know, Vladdy's got power to right. Bobachet's got power to right. You know, George Springer, if he wants to, even though he, he pulls a lot, I mean, he does have some power to right too. And if that's going to get shorter now, you know, you don't have to, if you know if it if the walls are coming in the way we think they are, there's a bit of a short porch out in right field, uh, you know, and in left field as well. You don't have to get them get balls in quite the same way where you might be able to loft a few balls where you know that ball might have gone you know 360, 370 uh, at the old park and it turns into a long out and this one might bang off the wall or maybe maybe go maybe clear it at, at different points and that's certainly going to change some offense thing is you have to pitch in that too right and you know for for lineups that are filled with power hitters i mean just think about like when you know aaron judge and carl uh, Carlos stanton are coming in with the yankees you know those two guys can flick their wrists and you know send the ball 370 feet to to right center easy right you see that at yankee stadium all the time and all the the jokes about yankee stadium specials well you know there, there might be some roger center specials coming uh this year but you know, I do know, and, and Mark Shapiro said this back in December, that the Blue Jays did work to try and neutralize the impact uh, on the offense in areas where, you know, the fence might have been moved in and the wall is taller. And, you know, they did a study believing that that would make it play a little bit more neutral. Proof's going to be in, pu- in the pudding on that. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of intrigue about how this ultimately can play. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, it's got a Buffalo feel to it a, a little bit, right? I can just remember Vladdy and Alejandro Kirk hitting homers the other way in Buffalo. It sort of got that feel to it. I, I, I don't know if I should have those feelings or not this early on about that feel. You just sort of don't want to turn it into a joke, right? You don't want to have it to where, oh, no, we got to go in there if you're a pitching staff because we know sort of what the Blue Jays' weakness is. It's their pen, and we know how hard it is for Petey and John Snyder to sort of line up their bullpen sixth inning on of getting those kind of guys. Is it, you know, sort of turning into that kind of joke when you talk about bringing it in in the big part of the field and making it closer and – just sort of having it a little bit more of a band box. Yeah, look, that's the fear. And 
And I don't know this. I haven't heard this. This is my own personal speculation. But we also know this is the first part of a reno, right? And that the, this year the focus was on the outfield and that the next offseason they're going to take out all the seating from, uh, from foul pole to foul pole and replace that. And there's going to be shifts to the amount of foul territory that's going to be in play and all along those lines, and, and maybe maybe they bring it back a little bit based on the changes afterwards. I don't know. I think they do get maybe a bit of a year to see how it's playing and perhaps make some adjustments based on that. Shy, I don't but, know about you, but but sorry to interrupt you, but I, if you're Bo and Vladdy and you're, you're hearing these numbers and you're thinking, I'm trying to get big-time paid, and you're thinking, <laughs> man, if I just tappy the other way, I don't even have to hit it that hard. Create some backspin, I get rewarded for it. That's a big deal. Like, you could yeah. make some extra money doing that, right? A hundred percent. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, like, I don't know. If if it is as short as, as some of the, the thoughts out there, I'm like, well, I guess the Blue Jays just want to ta- have Vladdy and Bo take a run at, uh, you know, Aaron Judge's American League home run record, right? <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, jokes aside, like, yeah, like, it could create a lot of offense. It could also, look, you know that, Kevin, I mean, I'm sure you experience this when you're in a, in a shorter ballpark. You know, there's a temptation to try and change your swing a little bit, right? And mm-hmm. say, well, get out of your approach and like, well, it's just a short porch. I could just do this and I'll get there. And then maybe all of a sudden you start chasing some balls that you might not. You know, I remember Carlos Delgado talking about that one time where he, he kind of had a he's saying that he had to fight himself whenever they got to the smaller ballparks. Um. To, to just continue to just do the things that made him successful as opposed to saying, oh, the fence is short, I can take advantage of it. Like, you know, he, his, his mindset was have the same approach all the time, uh, you know, uh, against the pitcher and thinking to, the, about the things that make you successful rather than trying to hit to the park, you know, hit, hit, to, the, hit to the plan, hit to what you're going to see as opposed to hit to the ballpark. So I, I think there's going to be a bit of push and pull in that way too because – Look, if you're if you're thinking, oh, I just have to do this, I just have to do this, and I'm going to get a home run. Well, you know, maybe maybe you're not getting a pitch that's going to allow you to do that, and then you're giving away the chance to to get a single, or maybe you're swinging at a at a ball that helps change a count, and now all of a sudden, you know, your hold at bat is different. Shy, really good of you to join us today. Thanks so much. It'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to uh, see when it's when it's in place, and I can't figure out who I want to talk to first about it. Dalton Varsho or Chris Bassett? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Chris, Chris Bassett may have been like, hey, where was this when I was talking about my contract? No that's what I think. And it's so secret. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think that's what we're all thinking. Thanks for doing this, Shai. Thanks, Shai. Take care, guys. Take care. Shai Davidi of Sportsnet joining us on Blair and Barker. Welcome back to the Blair and Barker podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe. We will be back on the air on Sportsnet 590, the fan, uh, in a time slot once uh, once spring training begins. Well, Jason Stark of The Athletic uh, not only covered Scott Rowland when Scott Rowland was with the Philadelphia Phillies, he was also part of MLB Network's coverage of the Hall of Fame announcement this week. He was in Cooperstown for it. And Jason, thanks so much for joining us. I've got to think that being in Cooperstown for the announcement of a guy you know really well and a guy you covered for a long time, that had to be a pretty special moment for you. All right, well, I mean, I have two images. I mean, one was Scott Rowland, the guy I got to know and 
spent a lot of time chatting with. The other is just the way he played baseball. You know, I, I was covering the Phillies in Philadelphia when Scott Rowland arrived, and he, he was 21 years old, and they ran him out there to third base. And I watched this for a while and thought, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anybody play third base this way. And I saw Mike Schmidt, and Mike Schmidt even said, this guy was a better defensive third baseman than I was. And just, he had a mindset, right? Like, I've, you know, I, I tried to compare him on the air one day to, uh, it's like watching J.J. Watt play third base. <laughs> because uh, if, no matter what kind of ball was hit to the left side of the field, he was sure he was going to catch it. And he, he didn't care if he, had, if he had to run over the shortstop or the Fanatic or the grounds crew or whatever had to happen for him to somehow attack the ball and catch it. And then if he caught it, he could throw you out from anywhere. His one knee, his butt, the coach's box, left field. It was something to see a guy play third base that way. And, you know, you just saw it in Detroit. His, his shoulder wasn't the same by the – I'm sorry, you guys saw that in Toronto. But his shoulder wasn't the same by the time he got to the Blue Jays. But his mindset and the way he played baseball was something to behold. And then Scott Rowland, the guy, he was smart. He was funny. He took no crap from anybody. He, he, he was really fun to cover. Jason, how much do you think the eye test, that's the first thing that stood out to me when I was watching you on TV and you said that you saw him play and when you saw him, you thought he was a Hall of Famer. You, know, you can't argue that, right? It's the sabermetric guys. But I, I wonder how much you think went into the other voters saying exactly what you said is the eye test. When I saw him, I thought he was a Hall of Famer. You, you know, Kevin, uh, I actually think the eye test hurt him. I don't know why people – watched him play and didn't think he had that Hall of Fame aura about him. I mean, I got into this with, with Chris Russo, who's a big eye test guy, and said that to me. <laughs> and I said to him, I, I'm a fan of the eye test. And I think I got to see him play more than you did. And let me tell you what that was like. Um, see, I think it was really the data and the the fact that we have so many tools now to evaluate a guy like him who computes as the third greatest defensive third baseman in the history of baseball. And I think that's what pushed him up the board until he got elected. But I, I also think, you know, for people who care about what I thought and what I saw, and I had, you know, several voters talk to me, especially this year, and undoubtedly heard me talk about him on the air, you know, I, I, I do think that the eye test matters when we vote, when you sit in the park and you watch somebody who's, who's a great player do those great things. Like, I factored that in. I always have. Um, and, you know, maybe I spread the word, but I really think it was about the data in his case. Jason, is there one stat other than, you know, you look at his home runs, 316 for a corner guy. It's not a ton, right? It's the, you know, most of those guys, you're looking at the, the 500 range. Is there eye-popping? You know, he's an elite defender. I'm sure that took him over the edge. Is there one stat nowadays that you go to first to, you know, sort of set that guy apart from other guys? Um, it, it, look, wins above replacement has become a big part of the voting. Uh, and I understand that. I accept that. Um, 
Scott Rowland over the course of his career was a 70-win player. 70-win players are Hall of Famers, unless there's some extenuating circumstance. Bonds, Beltron, pick your circumstance. Uh, so, like, that's an easy reference point. But one I have tried to, to pass along now for several years was, he, you know, this guy did everything well. Uh, sensational base runner. We talked about that on our uh, on our show a couple of times. I, you know, took the extra base forty nine percent of the time that was possible. That's a crazy number, and and then just the combination of it all. Eight seasons where he won a Gold Glove and had an OPS that was twenty percent better than league average, and the only third baseman in history with more of those is Mike Schmidt. He's got more than Arenado. People think Arenado is a far superior offensive player, and yet, you know, I, I, some of that's probably Coors Field related. But Scott Rowland, the slash line and the power and the uh, the extra base hits and the you know the clutchiness and the defense and the base running—that's what added up for me. Looking at the ballot itself, Jason, I you you pointed this out uh, on the. The telecast and and you and Peter Gammons and uh, and Ken Rosenthal a terrific sort of a roundtable in the Athletic also talked about this and, and until I kind of heard you guys talk about it I, I I hadn't put it in context but Scott Rowland received what ten point two percent of the votes on his first year on the ballot that's correct six six years later he got seventy six point three percent okay he barely got over you know, got over the line here. But if he didn't this year, he was going to get over the line next year by even more, by even more, I would argue. What does that say about about the ballot? Is that simply in your mind the fact that you know, Bonds and Clemens are now gone? Uh, they're off the ballot. They're not coming back on. You know, there are still some of us who will vote for A-Rod. We'll go to our grave voting for A-Rod. But even that, that's, I admit, that's kind of a, a kind of a contrarian protest vote. Does that mean now that we need to really start paying attention to what a guy gets in his first year, or does it mean that the first year doesn't matter at all? Oh, it matters because if you don't get 5%, there's not going to be a second year. And when you look back at 2018, which was Scott Rowland's first year on the ballot, it is a miracle that guys like him and Andrew Jones – Billy Wagner even stayed on the ballot because there were eight Hall of Famers on that ballot. Eight. Mm. Uh, he's be, you know he becomes the ninth, uh, plus Clemens, plus Bonds, plus Schilling, plus Manny, plus Kent. Like all these guys who got fifty percent this year, you know Wagner, Sheffield, Andrew Jones, they were all on that ballot. Plus Omar Vizquel. I remember he got over fifty percent. Um, a couple of years back, before the other stuff started to creep in. Think how hard it is. You know this, Jeff, as a voter, when you've only got 10 slots and you're looking at all those names to figure out who you're going to leave off. And, you know, I never like to do this. My, my voting philosophy was always, was this guy a Hall of Famer or not? If he was, vote for him every year. Then that became impossible because the ballots got so overcrowded. And like I now do this. I, I have to, to reserve a slot or two every year to make sure somebody I think 
deserves a long look, stays on the ballot. And I did that mm-hmm. for Rowan that first year. I've done it for Jimmy Rollins the last two years. I might do it for somebody like David Wright next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's value in the process. And there's the, the, it's when you have some time to really put a player in perspective and debate that player and talk to smart people about that player, it's certainly possible for for minds to change. Scott Rowland is living proof. So um, the process has now gotten very different, and that's going to happen again next year. We had a bunch of ballot spots open up this year with Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, Ortiz all off. That was over 1,000 votes. But next year, it's going to get really crowded again, and you could have some players slip off. Uh, hey, it's still really bothers me that Carlos Delgado was one and done, just to pick right. a name. Right. Uh, that That's one of the names that you know that came to mind for me. And I, I mean, I'm kind of going to be in a similar position next year as well, because I kind of realized that, you know what, this uh, casting kind of the protest contrarian vote for A-Rod this year was the only guy I voted for, because I'm still, I've got a, the, the whole thing with PEDs really, I, I've got a real issue with it. But you know what, when I, when, when you see, the Hall of Fame committees composed of guys who are in the Hall of Fame. When you see them saying, we're not going to put these guys in the Hall of Fame, I'm talking about Clemens and Bonds and Schilling here, then you almost as a voter, you have to say, okay, if you, like, I think some of us are going to have to change the way we look at this as a result of that because I'm a big believer. I have a lot of time for guys who are in the Hall of Fame. Right? That's, that's what this is about. And if the guys in the Hall of Fame aren't comfortable with those guys, then maybe I need to take a rethink of how I'm voting. But what I wanted to, the, the reason I, I mentioned that is when all these votes are made public, I will be, I don't know if this is possible. I'd love to know, Jason, where all of those votes that were cast for Bonds and Clemens went on this ballot. I would oh, I can love help to you with that. You know, I, oh. I, 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 like I wrote about that very thing in my five takeaways column, which posted the night of the election. It was really interesting um, to see where the votes went because they were not going to Scott Rowland. You know why? He was already on the the ballots of the, the Ortiz, Clemens, Schilling, uh, right. Bonds voters, um, but. You know, Todd Helton almost did something that has never been done. Went from 52% to election, just missed. And more than 50% of his added votes were from voters who didn't have room for him last year. Billy Wagner, same thing. Andrew Jones, almost 60% of his votes came from voters who didn't have room for him last year, weren't voting for him before. And so... You saw these incredible surges, Helton, Wagner, Jones, Sheffield, unprecedented for players who were already at their level. We'd never seen that, and that's because the ballot loosened up um, as those guys disappeared off the ballot. Um, so that, like, when the ballots get crowded, that has a definitive impact. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I just want to address your point, Bob, sure. because... And I wrote something in the wake of Fred McGriff getting elected and Bonds and Clemens not getting close last month um, after that era committee election. And I, I understand what the Hall of Famers are saying, because they're basically saying what the writers said. But 
it, it's a weird thing to think about having a Hall of Fame that doesn't have the all-time leading home run hitter and the guy who broke Roger Maris's record and the all-time mm-hmm. hits leader and the guy who won more Cy Youngs than anybody who ever lived. And we could go on here, but that's, it, it, that is weird to me that we have a Hall of Fame that doesn't acknowledge those players in some way. And, you know, that's what the Hall of Fame wants right now. I do wonder in 50 years, 100 years after, like, time goes by, if they're having that conversation and asking themselves this question and thinking, what are we doing? Uh, I mean, we won't be alive to find out how it turns out, but it'll be interesting. Yeah, I uh, I I have a couple of thoughts about that. The first, I think uh, at some point, somebody, and I'm using somebody in air quotes because it sure as hell won't be me and I don't know who it'll be, but I I do think at some point, whether it's the commissioner or somebody, there there, there has to be something. Amnesty is probably a bad word, but I'm with you. I think there has to be a way to not necessarily welcome these guys into the Hall of Fame, not create a separate wing for the Hall of Shame or anything like that. But there has to be a way to address that, what I think is a real historical gap, right? And people will say, I mean, people will, I've had people say to me, well, wait a minute, there there are artifacts from Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame, I believe, are there not? Oh, there are artifacts, of course. Right. There are artifacts. I mean, like, they... Right. You can go through the Hall of Fame if you look hard enough and re- be reminded that those guys played baseball. It's not the same as <laughs> right. you know, the plaque gallery. And I, I don't see why that's that hard. <laughs> this is what you know. I think what you and I would say is, why can't you say Pete Rose got more hits than anyone who ever played, but Barry Bonds hit more home runs than anyone who ever played, but. And then just a, you know, a line or two that acknowledges – why it took so long, what might have happened, that feels like a little honesty on the plaque would take care of this. But I've, I'll admit, I've sat around the Hall of Fame offices with the people that work there and, and said that, and they said, all right, you write it. You tell us how to write it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, look, at the end of the day, I think the, the one thing that I've, uh, I've really – I've really come around to liking originally the the idea of setting up a whole bunch of different committees. I, I kind of had an issue with that. But, you know, I look at the Hall of Fame now and I compare the Baseball Hall of Fame to other Halls of Fame. And you know, I, of all the players who have gotten into the Hall of Fame since I've been a voter, whether it's via vote or whether it's through the committee, I mean, the only guy that I would kind of shrug or wince at has been Harold Baines. And I think that's a sign. And I, and, and look, any Harold Baines certainly isn't going to sully a Hall of Fame just because of the, the guy he was. So, But isn't that what it's all about at the end, that the argument we or the discussions we always have, Jason, is about why so-and-so isn't in the Hall compared to why so-and-so is in the Hall? I mean, even those of us who didn't vote for Scott Rowland. Scott, uh, Scott Rowland is a Hall of Famer. That, that's I'm not grabbing pitchforks and, t- and taking to the street. I, 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 I'm completely comfortable with that. And isn't that really what it's all about? You know, everybody draws their line uh, somewhere. And, you know, it's just like it, it's w- what makes the Hall of Fame special is that it's so hard to get into. And, it, you know, if you got 72% of the vote running for dog catcher, what would they call that? A landslide. 
Yes. Todd Helton got 72% of the vote this year in the Hall of Fame election. What do they call it? A heartbreak. But, you know, good luck next year. And the fact that it's 75% is what makes it so exclusive and what makes it so special. And so, we, you know, we, can, we all have our different voting philosophies. That's the way it's supposed to be. And in the end, it all adds up to a really special place. I've actually been a member of those era committees, too. And it's a really different process. But I, I think it's valuable to allow a group of baseball people with a different perspective than you and me mm-hmm. to weigh in on who's a Hall of Famer. Again, I've been part of it. And, you know, like it, was, it was valuable for me to sit in a room and say – somebody like Alan Trammell, right? And say, all right, here's all the reasons Alan Trammell looks like a Hall of Famer, but here's why he didn't get elected by the writers. And look, pick a Hall of Fame player in the room, George Brett, Dennis Eckersley, whoever, and say, what did you guys see? And then they would talk. And it's great to have those perspectives and add them to the process. I have, like, it's, it's, I mean, Harold Baines was is certainly one of the shakier players that we've elected. But you just said it. It's, it's when at the end of the day, it's not an embarrassment for the sport that Harold Baines got into the Hall of Fame, and the people who think it is just you know they get too caught up in their own thing. One of my favorite stories about the committee process, I know Kevin wants to jump in here, and we want a a quick question about the Angels and about Shohei Otani, because God knows (laughs) you're not going to be asked about that uh, the rest of the year by anybody. But one of my favorite Hall of Fame (laughs) stories was uh, talking to Roland Heeman at at Robbie Alomar's Hall of Fame induction, and we were talking about the committee process and everything. And, of course, Roland saw it just about every living baseball player, right, at, at, at that time. Yep. And we were talking about Robbie Alomar, and, and he said, I'm, I'm going to tell you how, he said, what Robbie Alomar means to me. He said, we, I was in a committee process where we were looking at Joe Gordon, and I'm going, oh, God, here we are getting a Joe Gordon story. <laughs> and he said, I told the committee that Joe Gordon – was Robbie Alomar if Robbie Alomar had also been an acrobat. I can always always remember just thinking about, you know, what I'm getting at, sort of the institutional knowledge, right, that that comes out in those committees is, I I think it's a vital part of the process. I really do. And I I think it's something that, and and I'm glad, I think it it started to change because I think in the past, a a lot of people would kind of roll their eyes at the committee and go, yeah, it's the good old boys network and all that, taking care of guys. But there really is something to be said for that that institutional knowledge, right? Because I couldn't, uh, not many people could describe Joe Gordon that way, right? I I agree. Um, I mean, I I, I had so many incredible people in the room with me the year I did it. Uh, Paul Beeson was one of them. He was fantastic. Robin Yount walked in with a binder like six inches thick. All the stuff he researched on, on different people on our ballot. Uh, and I can't say a whole lot, but like mm-hmm. Ted Simmons was on our ballot uh, mm-hmm. in that room. He, he was one and done on the writer's ballot. One and done. Yeah. Uh, he's now in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, people who didn't play the game didn't see 
what the men in that room saw. Mm. There were players who played with him, players who played against him, uh, players who understood what a tough out he was, players who understood what his defensive value was as a catcher that may not show up in the numbers. Like that is a that was a incredible experience to be there and hear that conversation, uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't political, which is what people think. Mm-hmm. It was a, a an intense baseball conversation at a level that writers don't often have. So, like, no one will ever convince me that there isn't tremendous value in giving players a second look with a group like that. Okay, I think we can agree. Bill Trey, Beltron, uh Probably Todd Helton, Wagner, you know, they're probably going to get in. The one name for me, Jason, is Andrew Jones. Uh, you know, the 400 homers, the 10 gold gloves. Uh, you know, we'll put a bow on this voting thing. How do you think he ends up? Uh, is he a Hall of Famer? I test-wise, you would think 100% he is. Numbers, does he say he is before we jump into the Otani conversation? Well, you know, if you if you listen to me on the air and read the, the stuff I've written about, about him in the last week, you'll know that I'm not. I've I have not been able to get myself to check that box for Andrew Jones, and I try to say this very respectfully because the the young Andrew Jones, the primetime Andrew Jones, was the greatest defensive center fitter I ever saw. Okay, um, but then there are okay. Here's my thinking. One is offensively. Not as good a hitter as the 400 homers make it seem like he was. Um, here is the here's the issue. You know, we now have lots of other tools that put a guy's overall offensive game in perspective. And you know, you just want to compare him to Scott Rowland. I mentioned that Scott Rowland had eight seasons with a Gold Glove and uh, an OPS 20% above league average. Uh, Andre Jones only had four of those seasons. And, you know, he was winning the gold glove every year, so that wasn't the problem. Uh, Jim Edmonds had twice that many. Jim Edmonds was one and done. Uh, I'm not 100% convinced Andrew Jones was a, had a better career than Jim Edmonds. Um, the second thing, uh, and, you know, Andrew, as he got older, uh, he got heavier, he got slower, his jumps weren't as good. Uh, and then when he hit 30, uh, it, you know, his career just totally careened off the cliff to the point where five seasons after age 30 had under five wins above replacement combined, which would be the fewest of any Hall of Fame outfielder. And I have a hard time getting past that because of, he, you know, he, he got big contracts and got, you know, he got a little comfortable, I would say. So if that's the case, then the defense has to be Willie Mays. And I know that the there's a school of thought that, that it, he was Willie Mays for 10 years. And yet, you know, I talked to a guy named Chris Dial, who was part of the, uh, the committee that has furnished defensive stats for the Gold Glove voters. And he's convinced that Andre should have won no more than three or four, certainly not Ten gold gloves, and he, you know, he explained it to me. You know, you probably don't want a lot of details on it, but, uh, you know, I saw that too with my eyes. I know a couple of stories behind the scenes from Braves players of how Andrew began to decline defensively, and it's just stuck in my head. Um, so 
that I've been dealing with all that, weighing all that, and I haven't gotten there. But I certainly understand the case for him. I, like, I'd be curious if you think I'm wrong on this, Kevin. Well, I think the eye test, right, it's just the numbers when you look at them, they're eye-popping. I, I, I do think it's who he played for and the rotation that he played behind. I, I think that's a benefit. And I think he gets penalized for being in the big leagues when he was 19. You know, he's already 11 yeah. years deep in the big leagues before he reached 30, right? That's a, True. That's a big-time career before you ever get to 30. And I just don't – that's why I ask you. I know you do your homework and you have more people behind the scenes that know more about that than I do. It's just the eye-popping – he's only one of four people who have 400 homers and 10 right. gold gloves and the other three are first ballot guys. So, I, it's a, it's a, I think it's a good argument, right? And you brought up some great points and – and that's why I ask, because you know more than I do. It's a great answer. It's a great answer. I don't know if I know more than you do, but I just, you know, I'm just viewing it from a, a perspective that I lived, you know, watching yep. the guy yeah. play. And that, what you brought up, the fact that he debuted in the big leagues at 19, is one of the toughest parts of the argument. People, the people who tell me, uh, you're, you're, you're penalizing him for getting to the big leagues so young. Yep. Um, on one hand, I probably am slightly. On the other hand, all right, we're going to compare him to Scott Rowland, who just got elected. You know, he didn't reach the big leagues at 28. He got to the big leagues at 21. and was the unanimous rookie of the year. And he was still winning gold gloves and making all-star teams at 35 and 36 years old. Um, I, there's, a, you know, there's a dedication to being great. That at a you know, once you as, you as you begin to age, that I think is important. I can tell you again, being in those era committees, one of the questions that Hall of Fame players asked me over and over in the room was, "How long was this guy's period of greatness? You know, how what, was he still was he still great at thirty three, thirty four, thirty five years old? I mean, though, though I, those questions are in my head." Because the the answer in Andrew's case was no, and why? You know, so it's a really tough debate. I, I've I've spent hours on it over the years, and we're not done. Jason, you've been really gracious with your time. I just want to ask one quick question about uh, the Angels uh, news that uh, Arte Moreno has pulled the Angels off the block. That in and of itself is interesting, but sort of the immediate follow-up to that is what does it mean for Shohei Otani? Are, it, it, are we on the clock right now as far as Shohei Otani's Angels career is concerned because of this? Um, yeah, now do you mean that in the sense of he'll, there's no way he'll re-sign there yes. as a free agent or in the sense yep. of they'll trade him at the deadline? I Just in, in the sense that the only way he was going to stay with the Angels would be if there was new ownership and, and new ownership you know, was fully committed to winning. Because you did read just parsing some of the things he said during the season last year and some of the stuff he's, he said in the offseason. It, it, it's pretty clear, at least, that he has he's thinking about he's thinking about whether or not his long term future is with the Angels. I think that's clearly his perspective, something magical would have to happen there this year to change that perspective. Um, so that's clearly how he sees it, guys. But then there's how Artie Moreno sees it. And when I hear people talk about, how, well, hey, he's got to trade him. They should have traded him this winter. They've got to trade him at the deadline. I, I need you to remember something. He, it's not just that he's their best pitcher and then not other than Trout, he's their best hitter. 
He's the top money maker in the sport. <laughs> you know, he keeps them he keeps them afloat financially. He is a revenue generating machine worldwide. And I talk to people who know Artie and they tell me he does not want to go down in history as the owner who traded Shohei. Hmm. I so I'm really dubious that he gets traded. I don't know and I I do think that he the fact that he is not selling the team will be a factor in whether Shohei wants to stay, but I mean I I, I do think that Perry Manassian, you know, uh, once once worked in your town, uh, mm-hmm. has done a good job of filling out their roster. They don't seem like they're as good as the Astros or the Mariners, but if something magical happens and they make the playoffs and Shohei and Mike Trout do something special and, you know, you have these surprise scripts every October, you never know what could happen. But if if you're trying to bet on this right now, you can't possibly bet that he'll be an angel a year from now, can you? No, I don't. I don't think you can, Jason. Thanks as always, man. Again, uh, I know we've kept you a long time, but it was a great discussion. We really appreciate your time and your insight. It's wonderful. Thanks so much, man. Be well. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I love talking to both you guys. Look, hope our paths cross in Dunedin. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks, Jason. Jason Stark of the Athletic. Thank you, man. Uh, I want to thank Jason Stark for joining us. Hey, it's that time of the podcast where uh, we open. The mailbag for Barker's Back Lake Bits. And Kevin, we got a ton of questions. Now, I think our conversation with Shai Davidi uh, sort of dealt with a lot of the questions we got about the dimensions of the outfield or the outfield dimensions at, uh, at the Rogers Center. Uh, so let's maybe move on to other topics. Uh, Asday wants to know about the Jays' running game. He said, last year the Jays were in the bottom 10 in steals per game in the league. Given the new rules, pitch clock, maximum three pickoff attempts, bigger bases, et cetera, et cetera, and the recent additions we've seen to the roster, right? Uh, Whit Merrifield was there last year. Kevin Kiermaier, uh, Dalton Varsho in particular. Do you think this team will look to be more aggressive in the base pass? Do you guys think there will be more base stealing this year throughout the league based on the rules changes. Thanks, Mr. Barker, over to you. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. It's two pickoffs, not three pickoffs. So let's let's What did I say? That's my bad. Three, yes, three, well, he, well, he okay. said three pickoffs, it's two pickoffs. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do think for that reason I th- I think there's going to have to be a little bit more up in pay when it comes to you got to you know, tell these guys if you're going to try and steal 30 bases, we're going to pay you a little bit more money. So I do think money talks when it comes to that. When it comes to the Blue Jays, absolutely. You know, not having Teoscar, uh, not having some ideas about where Kiermaier and Varsho. I mean, if Varsho shows up here, Jeff, and has a, a down year, not the year he had in Arizona, would you be surprised? Like, we, do we really know what we're going to get from him offensively? Defensively, I think we know he's very athletic. He runs all over the place. He gets great jumps. He gets good routes. You know, the dimensions of the field now, all of a sudden, you're going to have to be good at backing up. You know, balls in the gap, back up Kiermaier, the ricochets off the wall, those things. We think he's going to be good at that. But Varsho, offensively, do you know, like, the timing issues, all the things, different league, you know, the, the expectations that he'll come in here and have to carry his load offensively, like, there's going to – you know, be some unknowns there. So, I, to long-winded point there, I think when you're John Snyder, you get an opportunity. You got Kiermaier who can run. Now, again, that Kiermaier thing for me 
Is it more important for him to give you stolen bases, first to thirds, or playing more defense in the outfield? Yeah. Because what's his issue, Jeff? It's been since he's been a big leaguer, is staying on the field. Kevin, I got to tell you, the guy that I'm really interested in seeing when it comes to base running is Bo Bichette because the base running analytics, uh, the uh, going first to third, taking the extra base analytics were not kind to Bo Bichette last year. That's a guy that I, I think I'll be interested in seeing how much of an impact the running game has in him. That that To me, he'll be the litmus test as to whether or not the Blue Jays become a base running team. Yeah, maybe. Look, I think he's a very smart guy. I think he's going to have every opportunity that to you know have opportunities to go first to third and and just be himself. He gets an opportunity, especially guy throws over a couple of times. He knows the guy can't throw over a third time. You know, he's a smart dude. He'll figure that out. He'll take the the base when he needs to take it. Again, I just get back to that thing when you're when you're you know trying to get paid, and is the stolen base back enough that. It warrants these guys who try and play every single day like Bo to take chances. That's the one thing for me, and I think he's going to pick his spots. I don't think he's going to turn out to be a guy who steals 50, but I think he'll steal it when he needs to steal it to help his team win baseball games. Denny Toth has a question for you. The starting pitching depth seems very thin. Is there another move to come? Is Ricky Tiedemann actually an option to start the season? Well, I hope so. Look, look the, the the question you have to ask yourself, you say, Kikuchi, how big's the leash, Jeff? You know, did what they saw at the end of the year, the confidence, uh, the location of the heat a little bit more, you know, eliminating a third pitch, can he take that into the rotation and be good enough to warrant getting a start every five days? Or do you bring up Ricky Tiedemann? I, I just asked the question, and, and I don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you the question. If Ricky Tiedemann is as good as everybody's tooting that horn of saying he is, put him in the big leagues. Why wouldn't they? Why waste his bullets in the minor leagues? If he's as good as everybody says he is, put Yusei Kikuchi in the big leagues, let him be your fifth guy, go out there and learn how to do it in a championship so run. I don't see why you wouldn't see him. Put Tiedemann in, you mean, not, not Kikuchi. No, que- no question. Put Yusei Kikuchi in the bullpen. Let him do that two-pitch thing. Maybe he'll throw a little bit harder. Maybe he can be a lefty specialist. Maybe you'll see mm. the light at the end of the tunnel with him. And if Ricky Tiedemann's that good, let him come up here and, and learn with, in my mind, one of the best pitching coaches in baseball and let him do it behind a really good pitching staff. Yeah, I'm not – I don't think you say Kikuchi's going to be in the rotation this year. I think you say Kikuchi's going to be in the bullpen. Beyond that, I don't know about Ricky Tiedemann. I've heard two things about Ricky Tiedemann. One, that he could be as good as Alec Manoa from people in the organization. Two, that they don't want him up this year until maybe, maybe, maybe halfway through the year. I don't know what the look. I, I don't pretend to know where the you know, what the where the line of demarcation is with Ricky Tiedemann. If he's lights out in spring training, does it make any difference? Or does it does it mean he's closer to the majors, or does it just mean that he is going to start at a different level in the minors? I think personally, given the way this organization is structured, given what they want to do this year, I see no reason why they wouldn't get Ricky Tiedemann into the major leagues as soon as possible. But I just, I, I, I just don't know. You know, I, I, I just don't know with him because he is such a, his situation is so unique. With hearing you say that sounds to me like they don't have confidence that a couple of things, he doesn't have a third pitch that, 
they have confidence enough that he can throw. He can't steal a strike with a secondary pitch and fastball command. If he had all of those, you wouldn't be hearing those rumblings, right? You wouldn't be hearing that they don't want to call him up till whenever they don't want to call him up or they're sort of having the kids' gloves. And I just think, look, mm. the rumblings around the baseball world is he's really good. If he's really good – I mean, it's not like you have so much depth that you can leave him down there and let him use up his bullets in AAA or AA or at the minor league complex. You call him up, let him show us what he got. That'll be intriguing. That, that'll be interesting to see if we do see him sooner than later. Fennec McKenzie, I agree with Barker. I don't see the, I don't see the second baseman being on the roster for opening day. I don't remember you saying that. With which trade value presumably being low, what do you guys think is a realistic return for Biggio or Espinal? Love the show. Thanks for the uh, for for the comment. Not really a ton. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, let me rephrase that. He says he doesn't see the Jays carrying three second basemen on the roster. Okay, I'm I'm with you in that. I I don't think Biggio, Espinal, and uh, and Whit Merrifield are going to be on the team. All three of them. I don't think so. I think one of them's gone. Yeah, I think this is Whit Merrifield for me as your everyday second baseman. I think it comes yes. down to who do Agreed. you like better, Biggio or Espinal. And and I just think for me, because Biggio can play multiple positions, I think having no shift, you need to mix and match and put some athletic guys around defensively. Kevin Biggio can give you that, Espinal can't. Uh, and the right-handed, left-handed thing, I think, is a big deal, right? How many yeah. how many left-handed power throwers do you see late in the game? Not too many. You see more righties. And to have Kevin Biggio coming off the bench and doing those things, maybe a little bit more value. So I would think for me, if you're going to see a trade, the value is probably more with Espinal. I know we've seen some, heard some rumblings with Seattle before the Teoscar trade that they may be interested in Espinal needing a second baseman. Obviously, I already went out and got that. But I, for, for me, that's not their thing. <laughs> I, I think they're going to piece that together enough that having whoever they're having, Whit Merrifield will play good enough second base that, that that's not an issue. For me, it's more their bullpen, and that's that's where they need to solidify whoever mm. they need to go out. I don't think their arms back end is here yet. They're a playoff team. Are they a championship team with the bullpen they have? For me, they, they're not. But – to answer the question, I do think probably the more value because of the defensive side is more in Espinal. I think for what the Jays need, it's probably more with Biggio. I think you would see mm-hmm. more of him being the backup guy and playing more positions and coming off the bench being the left-handed hitter. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Santiago Espinal may be the guy, may be the guy as part of the package that gets you that 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 arm for the back end of the bullpen. I, I, I mean, I'm looking around in this team, and absent wanting to move one of your prospects, uh, to me, he's the guy that screams right now, being the most available. But I will ask Bobachet, knock on wood, gets hurt. Who plays short? That's, That's the question. A very good question. I also will say this as a caveat. I don't think, I don't think, the Jays have got their entire roster of position players in camp yet i still think there's another move to be made whether it's adding another outfielder or perhaps that veteran who can back up at shortstop and second base i still i still think the roster itself is a little incomplete um david and uh port hope the reason i'm reading this question is because it ties in with something that just kind of broke just as we were coming in the air. He wants to talk about Blue Jays going into the Hall of Fame, talked about Fred McGriff, wants to know why Cito Gasson isn't in the Hall of Fame. I've wondered that for a long time. 
John Morosi reporting today that Jim Leland, Cito Gaston, and Brian Sabian are among the possible candidates for the next Baseball Hall Era Committee vote in December 2023. This is one of the committees that the Baseball Hall of Fame has. Writers do not get to vote on managers. That has to go through the committee process. So, man, oh, man, Jim Leland, Cito Gaston, Brian Sabian, three of my favorite people in baseball. Cito Gaston's got to be in the Hall of Fame. Jim Leland's got to be in the Hall of Fame. Brian Sabian, longtime executive. Fingers crossed for all three of those guys. But I would love, I would love to see Cito. I would love to see Cito in the Hall of Fame, Kevin. It, it's I. It's one of those things when every now and then when people say so-and-so is in the, in the Hall of Fame, I do shake my head and go, why is that the case? He's got to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's, he's great. He's been, he was great for baseball where he took the, an organization in Major League Baseball, what he, what he meets to Canada, absolutely. I think that's a no-brainer. I don't, I don't even know why that would be even up for debate. Mm-hmm. Like That is it for us. It was a long one today, but we had a lot to talk about. We want to thank Jason Stark for joining us, Shai Davidi as well. Mr. Barker, as always, it's a pleasure to share podcast time with you. Well, I I think we got to the the root of the evil when it comes to your votes for the Hall of Fame. So hopefully we fixed it and you're better at it next year. Also got to shout out the folks that keep us aligned. Got to shout out Mark Boffo, our producer, and the lovely and talented Austin Mackey who has spun all the dials and made sure that the technical stuff works. And uh, we appreciate both of them very much for all they do. Again, we'll be back on Sportsnet 590. The fan, once spring training starts, date to be announced. But uh, you can follow me on Twitter at SN Jeff Blair. We'll keep you informed as to when we're back on the air. As always, uh, you can get us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Leave us a lovely five-star rating. Leave Mr. Barker a very nice review. It means so much to him. (laughs) He means more to Kevin than he would ever let any of you know. That's it for all of us here at Blair and Barker. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again very soon.